This is VLX number 113, Drowned in the Depths. We are in Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 through 10. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, the only patristic Bible study and Ignatian prayer series online. God give you his peace and nomine patris affidit, spiritu sancti, amen. God, our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine patris affidit, spiritu sancti, amen. And continuing in Matthew chapter 18, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So for the imaginative way of prayer today, I'd really encourage children and adults listening to this to do this. Just picture all day long your guardian angel around you, to your right, to your left. He was one of those two places for Padre Pio, not just around him as some amorphous light. He was this being with a real personality, either to Padre Pio's left or right. What is your angel looking at? Amazingly, he's gazing at the Heavenly Father and you at the same time. Your guardian angel is looking at the Blessed Trinity in heaven and you all day. Well, how would you act if you could see this powerful warrior of righteousness at your side all day? This is a great question for children and adults. I think it would change all of our our way of lifestyle. Well, what would you say to people if you knew you had a silent angel at your side? How would you treat people? How would you worship worship at Mass? And this is the kind of Ignatian meditation, of course, like all of them, to do for 15 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day. But I would encourage you to let this carry over into the rest of your day. Not just imagining, we use that word imagination, but we're not really imagining in this case. We are realizing that there is truly and literally a guardian angel at your side 24 hours a day. And in that sense, it's not really imagination prayer. It's actually realizing the truth, which is really what all of this is. This is what mental prayer is, is not living in, imaginary, in an imaginary world. Mental prayer is actually realizing the supernatural reality around us at all times. But today it really comes to the forefront when you realize um, this isn't a hokey devotional. It is Catholic dogma that every one of us has a guardian angel. And some of us, like us priests, actually have two. We won't go into St. Thomas Aquinas on that today. Uh, now, for those doing the study way, and if this helps you in the imaginative way, let's just go right into the first verse today, Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, you can probably imagine this already. The Holy Fathers do interpret this literally. Father Lapide writes, quote, 
It were better to be sunk in the sea than to scandalize little ones upon earth because drowning is the death of the body, but causing a scandal is the death of the soul, both your own body and the souls of those whom you lead into sin. So Jesus means this literally. It would be better to be thrown into the ocean and tied to something huge where you drown on the way down and explode in the pressure of the bottom of the ocean because what happens to your body if you were taken, you know, five miles under the ocean is less bad than what's going to happen to your soul in hell if you scandalize children. Now, when we hear that, we think, you know, when we hear the term scandalizing children, we think first, I think, as Catholics, of these priestly scandals on morals and, if you've studied it all, doctrine too. So morals and doctrine. And we are right to condemn that very quickly because both of these often include harming children, both their bodies and their faith. But did you remember the first line of today's chapter, Matthew 18.1, that we covered in the last VLX? It's this. Listen to this. It's going to seem like this has no connection to today, but I'm going to read it to you. This was from the last VLX. This chapter started with, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, now, I've never thought there was any connection between the apostles arguing and scandalizing little children that we have five or six verses later. But that's what's so amazing about reading the early church fathers is that they, they do find a connection. Not find a connection. They actually know there's a connection because, you see, the early Christians do make a connection between clergy seeking honors and scandalizing children well, first, because they knew the Bible and the writers of the Bible with much closer friendships than we do have in the 20th century. But listen to what St. Jerome writes to make a connection between these two. He says, And if they remained in this fault, they might destroy those whom they were inviting to the faith by giving scandal when they saw the apostles fighting among themselves about dignity. Okay, so you see, we're not just talking about bringing children to drag queen events, even though that stuff is truly destroying the eternal souls of kids. And of course, uh, Christ in his eternity knew all of this would happen. And he's certainly speaking about that too. But that's pretty low-hanging fruit for us Catholics to knock out of the park, right? We Catholics and even clergy like me are a little bit more challenged when we read the Holy Father's connection here between uh, the first verse of today's chapter and this whole thing about millstones around necks. You see, St. Jerome is saying that clerics fighting about who is better among them is going to keep children out of the kingdom of heaven. Let me say that again. St. Jerome is saying that priests and bishops fighting about who is better among them is going to keep children out of the kingdom of God, and we're going to answer for that. So again, here's the connection in Matthew 18 between verse 1 and verse 6. Verse 1, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck. And then again, St. Jerome connects the two here again, but with a touch of my own commentary. And if they, he means the apostles, remained in this fault, that is, having a contest of importance in the presence of Christ, they might destroy those whom they were inviting to the faith by giving scandal when they saw the apostles fighting among them themselves about dignity. 
So yes, you are right in thinking about Sixth Commandment scandals between priests and children keeping kids out of the kingdom, and they certainly do. That, that should be on the forefront of our mind, especially in the, in the 21st century. But uh, a little bit more challenging to those of us who are Orthodox who wouldn't dare do something like that, we have to say, do we priests and bishops realize that vying for honors at pro-life dinners or becoming cardinals or thinking we're important on YouTube, do we realize that this potential arrogance or actual arrogance can keep others out of the Catholic Church as potential converts. That is the scandal St. Jerome interprets this as. Father Lapide continues, Let the clergy and religious who contend for preeminence among themselves take note of this passage. For such contention scandalizes seculars and laymen, and is an immense disgrace and cause of reproach to religion and the clergy. It were better then for them if they should be sunk with a millstone in the sea, then that they should thus give scandal to people, as Christ says here. For they who cause others to stumble by their ambition or by the example of their evil life are liable to punishment in hell. And they who are scandalized and follow the evil examples of others are condemned as their followers and associates and both alike are punished and perish. The world is full of scandals because it is full of wicked men and libertines, shameless, shameless and avaricious people. In order that they may satisfy their lusts, they come to they cause all to stumble. Therefore, the larger part of mankind is damned because of scandals. You see, we moderns, we think, well, if someone's scandalized by a priest, it's not their fault, so they're going to get to heaven. This is not how Jesus and the church fathers teach this. They actually, I mean, think about it. This is real easy stuff. If a holy priest can lead a lot of people to heaven then a priest refraining from being holy, is it going to have any real effect or not? Of course it is. We can't say, oh, well, all the people he would have led are going to give a pass because they were listening to a heretical priest or, or worse, a priest who was causing scandals. No, uh, I'm a little bit afraid to say this, but it's true. Jesus really did put a lot in our hands as priests. If we are saints, we lead people to heaven. If we mess it up, we lead people to hell. They don't get a pass. This is what the fathers are saying. They don't get a pass. This is why there's real consequences. It's like, you know, a good trauma surgeon who's doing thoracotomies, cracking open chests of people who've been shot or stabbed. Is he really saving lives? Yes, he's really saving lives. If you have a bad trauma, or I guess this would be an attending emergency department physician. They're the ones doing the thoracotomies in the ER. If you have uh, someone come in and like, well, you know, there's still a 1% chance this gunshot wound to the chest is going to live. If I don't do a thoracotomy, um, so I'm just not going to be an aggressive uh, ER doc or an, an aggressive trauma surgeon. Is there real consequences to that laziness? Or that would actually be more negligence and malpractice. Is there going to be real consequences? Yes. Why don't we think of this with souls? Because we don't think of souls as objective. Or if we do, we just think everybody goes to heaven. This is not why Jesus came. He came not because everyone was going to heaven. He came because we were going to hell and he wants to save us, but he gave the tools to us priests, especially, and to lay people, but especially to us priests. So when we put those tools on the table and don't use them, we refrain from saving people. And if we go worse and scandalize people, we lead a lot of people to hell. So we don't just get to say, oh, well, they would have gone to heaven, uh, or they're, they're going to go to he heaven anyway because they were scandalized. No, there really is a lot in our hands as priests. So again, if a good priest like St. John Vianney can save millions of souls, then a bad priest teaching against the faith can truly lose millions of souls. Father Lapide says, Moreover, scandals of which Christ speaks here are persecutions, derision, injuries of the righteous, also evil examples, 
and false doctrines, things done or said imprudently, for there are many things which are good and lawful in themselves, but by reason of inopportuneness of time or place, when they are done before the instruct, uninstructed, become an occasion of offense and scandal. So notice that false doctrines are scandals. I think Archbishop Vigano woke a lot of Catholics up to this in August of 2018 when he linked the priest-child scandals to all of these doctrinal scandals. Uh, one harms bodies and souls and the other just harms souls, but they both lead people away from the kingdom of God. Also on page 192, one quick note on the, uh, the language here, millstone in the Vulgate, that is Mola Asinaria, Father Labide says this is a millstone which in Palestine, says St. Hilary and St. Ambrose, is turned by donkeys. Hence the Syriac translates the millstone of an ass. A millstone in Latin is lapsis molaris, see also Luke 17.2. Here it is called asinaria, meaning a large and heavy millstone, which could not be turned by a man, as is done with a smaller hand mill, but which would require a horse or a donkey to turn it. So you're talking about um, in a mill when you have to have a stone crush wheat or whatever. I don't know farming very well. I don't know farming at all. When you have to crush something, you have a, a stone that has to crush it. And what it's saying here is a human can't carry this. This has to be big enough. This is one of those stones that can only be turned around the circle. See how little I know about farming? The circle. I don't even know what this circle is. Donkeys have to pull this giant stone around a circle. That is what Christ is saying goes would be better around your neck if you were to scandalize a little child. Okay, now let's look at the next few verses, verses 7 to 9. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame then with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And then let's look at one of the older Father Lapide sections, because uh, he actually in his uh, the book where we are right now refers us back to Matthew chapter 5. And he says, but because it is always possible to escape from sin in some other way than by cutting off a member, he means a body part, it is not lawful to cut it off and so mutilate oneself. Thus Origen, who castrated himself for chastity's sake, was condemned by the church. Finally, the concupiscences, which have to be cut off and mortified by everyone, so energetically and tenaciously cleaved to the eyes and the body, yea, are so rooted in the soul itself that they cannot be removed without great force and sense of pain, so that they who cut them off suffer as much as if they plucked off, plucked out an eye or a tooth. So what Father Lapide is saying here is mortification, just stopping sinning, is as hard as what Origen did, so just do that. Those who have gone through it know what it is, hence it is called mortification, because it produces the feeling and pain of death. Thus, according to the letter, St. Aquilinus and St. Andomarus, as is related in their lives in Surius, who had been blind and whose sight was miraculously restored by God, then asked of God that their eyes might be taken away and that they might return to blindness so that they might be free from the distractions, desires, and temptations which the eyes create. So you don't have to cut anything off, but 
mortification is almost as hard. As I've preached from the pulpit before, if man can control his eyes, he'll be a saint. If woman can control her tongue, she'll be a saint. There's a little crossover. Men have to control their gossip, especially more and more now. Women are having more problems with the internet than they were 20 years ago. But I'll double down and still say it again. If men can control their eyes, they're going to be a saint. If women can control their tongues, they'll be a saint. Okay, and then the last line from today that I think is its especially such a stunning visual, especially since it, like every line in the Bible, is entirely true. Matthew 18.10 See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now let's look at that word despise. Uh, despise is used in both the English Standard Version and the RSVCE, as well as the Dewey Rhymes Bible, as in do not despise children. So what does that word mean in Greek? Well, the Greek is kataphronisate, kataphronisate, and my dictionary reads to look down on, to despise, to think lightly of, to disregard. So Jesus is commanding do not look down on children. Do not despise children. Do not think lightly of children. Do not disregard children. Why? Because you're going to have to answer for them. In other words, if you think the angels watching their every move are powerful, imagine the power and holiness of my Heavenly Father who will judge you how you act around children and what you teach them. Yes, but whoever causes one of these little ones, says Christ, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Again, this is one of those giant millstones uh, for crushing things that only donkeys can turn. So I think that primarily refers to sins of commission, but think about it. If that refers also to sins of omission, then you're scandalizing your kids when you don't take enough time to catechize them too. Okay, let's hear more of children and angels and the relationship between children and angels from the church fathers. A few lengthy quotes here. Father Lapide says, For although they may be weak, he's speaking of children, for although they may be weak, yet they have guardian angels who are strong, who may accuse you to God, the Father, whom they always behold, being members of his household and his trusted friends, and by his command may severely avenge and punish all scandals and offenses inflicted upon those who have been committed to their charge. Guardian angels of individual men, continues Father Lapide a little bit later, guardian angels of individual men are ordinarily of the ninth or lowest order of the angelic hierarchy who are designated by the common appellation of angels. But to some special individuals of surpassing excellence or dignity, such as apostles, prophets, patriarchs, pontiffs, bishops, and kings, Guardians have been assigned of the Eighth Order who are called Archangels. And he continues, The offices of the Guardian Angels are as follows. 1. To avert dangers both of the body and the soul. 2. To illuminate and instruct those committed to their charge and to urge them to good works. 3. To restrain the demon that he may not suggest wicked thoughts or furnish occasions of sin. Number 4. To offer to God the prayers of him whom he guards. Number 5. To pray for him. Number six, to correct him if he sins. Number seven, to stand by him at the hour of death, to comfort and assist him in various ways during his last struggle. 
Number eight, after death, to convey the soul to heaven, or if it need purgatory, to accompany it there. And when there, to console it from time to time, until the cleansing being completed, he carries it to heaven. So notice that it was before I became a traditional Catholic, I kind of thought, and I'm admitting this is an error, I thought our guardian angels were there to obey us. But if you just listen to what I read you from Father Lapidate, no, no, we're there to obey them. Our job as humans on earth isn't to kind of, you know, send them around like these puppy dogs on, on uh, missions for us. I mean, they, they certainly are very helpful, especially if we're faithful to them. I mean, our guardian angels can uh, do a lot for us, but it's not primarily a utilitarian view that we have to have. It really has to be a view of we are supposed to obey them. They're not obeying us. They are called their angels. That's right from today's gospel. Why, you know, we might ask, why are they called their angels? And Father Lapide says they are called their angels because they belong to the little ones who are on familiar terms with them and are their special friends. For the angels marvelously love little children and the humble because they, as it were, belong to them and most resemble them. For the angels are very humble, and by their humility they overcame Lucifer, saying, with St. Michael, their captain, Michael, or who is like God. Morally, learn from hence, first, how great is the dignity of souls, as St. Jerome says, since they have angels for their guardians. In the next place, how great is the condescension of God that he assigns to us such guides. For these are they of whom it is said in Psalm 103, verse 4, who makest thy angels spirits and thy ministers a burning fire. In the last place, how great is the humility and love of the angels who care for and direct us children and direct us children so and do not disdain these duties but delight in them because they see their Lord and God made man as St. Bernard says. And then St. Bernard says, What reverence ought these words to instill into thee? What devotion, what confidence? Reverence for the angel's presence, devotion for his kindness, confidence for his guardianship. Walk warily, even as one to whom angels are present, as it has been commanded them in all thy ways. Whithersoever thou turnest aside, in whatever corner thou art, reverence thy angel. Do not dare to do in his presence what thou wouldst not dare to do if I saw thee. And this kind of ties back into what I said at the beginning of this VLX on the imaginative way of prayer. But there you have St. Bernard saying the same thing I did. Again, since the angels make it their business to purify, illuminate, and perfect us, it is right that we should obey them. Notice that again, that we should obey them by striving with all our might to attain to great sanctity and perfection, that we should emulate the life and habits of the angels and live in the flesh like heavenly men and earthly angels, as those who are eventually to be their companions in heaven. For as the apostle says in Ephesians 2.19, Now you are no more strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the domestics of God. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, But you have come to the city of the living God and to the company of many thousands of angels. Therefore, Father Lapide continues, Let us put away far from us all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, and especially all pride and contention. Nothing so provokes the angels to indignation as quarrels and scandals, as Christ here teaches. For they are the very angels of peace and edification, says St. Bernard. For the angels show justice toward God, peace towards each other, and joy to themselves, says the same author. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating, just as bees flee smoke, and a foul odor repels doves, 
so too is the angel who guards our life, driven away by a grave sin that reeks and causes the shedding of many tears. Virginity is plainly an angelic life, and those who do not marry and are not given in marriage will resemble the angels of God. Finally, let us often converse with our angels in spirit, as St. Bernard says. Have the angels, my brethren, for your friends, and often go to them in earnest thought and devout adoration, for they are always present to guard and comfort you. And by adoration, I think he means we adore God with our angels, or maybe he meant the old school worship as in honor right there. They always see the face of my Father, that is, the shining essence of God. The angels always see clearly without a veil, as it were, face to face. The angels, says St. Augustine, enjoy the immutable and ineffable beauty of God and burn with the holy love of him. They despise all lower things and themselves among them that they may enjoy wholly because they are good, that good, capital G good, by which they are good. The face of God then is the beauty and the brightness of divinity, clearly manifesting itself to the angels and making them blessed. For otherwise, strictly seeking, speaking, God does not have a face since he has no body. And then on this line, who is in heaven? St. Gregory, and by that he means Pope St. Gregory the Great, and St. Bernard, note that the angels, even when they go forth from heaven, always behold the face of God because God is everywhere. They're blessed wherever they are. Therefore, wherever they are, they are said to be in heaven. For where there is the vision and glory of God, there is paradise in heaven. Hence, St. Gregory concludes, they both stand before God and are sent. Because by the fact that they have been circumscribed, charged with a mission, they go forth, and by the fact that they are also present within, they never go away. And therefore, they always see the face of the Father and yet come to us, because they go forth abroad to us in spiritual presence, and yet they keep themselves there by interior contemplation. Last quote for you here. They do all things and guard the little ones in God and for the sake of God, for as a learned man says... They fulfill their duties externally in such a way, however, that they are never absent from God in their contemplation. For wherever they may go on their missions, they travel within him who is everywhere. Please say an Our Father for me et benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris et et Spiritus Santi, descendet super vos et maniet semper. Amen.